Well, as you remember, several weeks ago when we last met here in the auditorium and, and we're starting our series on the perfections of God, we looked at that first key characteristic of God that is so fundamental to understand as you start any study of the character of God, and that is the quality of God's incomprehensibility. And we defined divine incomprehensibility this way. The incomprehensibility of God is that quality of God which makes him incapable of being fully understood or fully defined by anyone other than God himself. It is so important to begin with that reality because it puts us in our proper place. It immediately brings us to a place of humility a place where we are all the more quicker to put our hands over our mouths and to tremble at this topic of God. Psalm 145 verse 3, for example, says this, Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. His greatness is unsearchable. And what that means is that there is no mental perception of God that we can have that can possibly reflect all that God is. Even in those best moments, even for us as regenerate, even for those who have been made new and have been given the eyes to see and the hearts to believe, that even in our best moments, those thoughts that we have of God cannot possibly encompass all that God is is. And we have to remember that, that whatever is going to be in our mind, even as faithful as it may be to the teachings of Scripture, that our thoughts will never equal who God is as He knows Himself. Now that reality leads to what we call a great intellectual distance. A great distance between God and and us, a great chasm that is there that separates us in terms of our possibility of knowing. It's like what the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 30, verses 2 to 4. He puts it this way, Surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists and has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. What the, 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 the writer there is expressing is this profound uh, understanding and recognition that He cannot possibly comprehend the one who has created what we see around us, the one who is infinitely majestic and holy and righteous. Obviously, if we study this attribute by itself, and all we do is look at that reality that we are stupid and have no knowledge of the Holy One, If we dwell upon that, we can easily be led to two very 
hopeless conclusions. One of those would be the conclusion of agnosticism, which teaches the view that nothing is known or can be known about the existence or nature of God. It was Protagoras, the Greek philosopher, who said this, "...with regard to the gods, I do not have the ability to know whether they exist or not." For there are many things that prevent a person from knowing. For example, the obscurity of the subject and the brevity of human life. Another Greek philosopher, Aristotle, put it this way. Where there is a great gulf as between God and man, friendship becomes impossible. There was a 19th century American agnostic by the name of Robert Ingersoll, who also asked it this way in skeptical terms, in an article entitled, Why I Am an Agnostic, he he asks this rhetorically. He says, is it possible for the human mind to conceive of an infinite personality? Can it imagine a beginningless being, infinitely power and intelligent? And his answer to that was, absolutely not. In fact, even if God exists... We cannot know. God may be out there, but we cannot know. That's the view of agnosticism. Or we can look at it in terms of another view, which is the view of mysticism. And mysticism puts it this way. Mysticism says we cannot know God with the mind. In fact, we cannot even really speak of knowing God, but to recognize Him, we can feel Him, and we can apprehend Him in a way that bypasses the mind through mysticism and contemplation. So you have someone like Brian McLaren, a mystic, really, who puts it this way. Doubt need not be the death of faith. It can be instead the birth of a new kind of faith, a faith beyond beliefs, a faith that expresses itself in love, a deepening and expanding faith that can save your life and save the world. Essentially, what what Brian McLaren and other mystics, whether in our day or in history, have said is that Indeed, God is incomprehensible. We cannot know Him, but we can experience Him. And we can do that through some kind of mystic contemplation. We can do that through some forms of of meditation, of mindlessness. And we can come to some experience of God. Indeed, those are two hopeless Conclusions, agnosticism and mysticism. And when we think of the incomprehensibility of God, it is easy to land in those two camps. John Calvin, who summarized the dilemma quite well when he stated it this way, he said, the situation would surely have been hopeless had the very majesty of God not descended to us since it was not in our power to ascend to Him. The incomprehensibility of God teaches us that we cannot ascend to Him. 
that no amount of mental exertion, no amount of exploration can lead us on our own efforts to a true understanding and knowledge of God. It's utterly hopeless on our own. But as Calvin describes it here, the majesty of God has descended to us. And that's what we speak of when we speak of the nobility of God. Now, when we talk about the nobility of, nobility of God, we, we have to identify a, a key term and define it. And a foundational definition here related to the nobility of God is, is the term revelation. This is very important. What is Revelation. Well, in a simple sense, we can define it as, as, as we find in biblical doctrine, the, the textbook authored by John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew, and, and they define it simply as this. Revelation is God's act of making known what is unknown and unveiling what is veiled. Or to state it in other terms, revelation is the act whereby God discloses a portion of his knowledge, granting the creature, granting the recipient of that knowledge, an opportunity to share in it. That's the doctrine of revelation. Revelation takes what is otherwise unknowable. It takes what is otherwise secret and impenetrable, and it opens it up and it makes it knowable. And that is what God has done with himself to us. We can know God. But again, we must remember that we can know God only to the extent and according to how he has explained himself. How he has revealed himself to us. And that is what we call revelation. J. Packer also puts it this way. He says, Revelation does not mean man finding God, but God finding man. God sharing his secrets with us. God showing us himself. And he has, indeed. He has shared his secrets with us. And this is why we can speak of God as knowable incomprehensible, yet knowable. Now, let's define this term knowable in a, in a more strict sense. When we speak of the knowability of God, about what are we speaking? And we can define it this way. This is a, an important definition to remember. The knowability of God testifies to God's intrinsic disposition and his unhindered ability to make specific knowledge about himself knowable to his creatures. Let me say that again. The knowability of God testifies to God's intrinsic disposition and his unhindered ability to make specific knowledge about himself knowledgeable or knowable to his creation. Now, that's a a mouthful for a definition, so let's unpack that. And when we unpack this definition, we can see three important emphases 
that we must understand as we talk about the knowability of God. First of all, we must understand that God is not compelled to reveal knowledge about himself. He does so freely, motivated by his own good pleasure. It's, it's not that we come up to heaven and kind of put God's arm behind his back and say, tell us who you are. And then God responds out of compulsion to tell us because we've made such a long trek and have expended such mental energy that he acquiesces. That is not what we are referring to when we talk about the knowability of God. No, the knowability of God is that God is never compelled outside of himself to reveal himself. He can remain in perfect secrecy if that be his will, and he is in that state still holy and righteous. But it's out of God's own good pleasure, according to his own will and grace, that he desires to be known by his creation. There's a second component here, and that's this, that God is not incapable of revealing himself. He doesn't have hindered ability. He is unhindered in his ability to reveal himself. And he can do so effectively. He faces no frustration in the delivery of this knowledge. There have been some who have contemplated and thought that, well, God is so incomprehensible that it must be truly impossible for him to cross that great chasm called the creator-creature divide. There's this idea that God cannot adequately reveal himself to anything less than himself. That knowledge becomes tainted. It is, in a sense, ruined by its being made toward creatures. But that's not what the Bible testifies, as we will see. God is not incapable of crossing this creator-creature divide. He can do so, and he can do so effectively, and he can reveal all the knowledge that he wants to reveal because he knows his creation perfectly. He knows what we as his creatures can possibly understand, and he delivers the knowledge in that way. Thirdly, God is not compromised in revealing knowledge about himself. Yes, he must take that knowledge, and he certainly limits that knowledge, and that communication must take place in a way that we can understand. We who are nothing in his sight, he must descend, and he must speak in human language, and he must use pictures that are understandable to us in order to describe himself. But as he does that, he does not compromise himself. He does not compromise his greatness, his purity. And this is the amazing thing about the one true God, the one who is incomparable, is that he can cross this divide and communicate true knowledge about himself. He can do so adequately. He can do so without 
any necessary error. It is always pure. It is always understandable. He never misses the mark. That is the nature of our God. That is his nobility. Stephen Charnock, in that very famous work on the existence and attributes of God, puts it this way. He says, quote, Now, it is impossible to honor God as we ought unless we know him as he is. And we could not know him as he is without divine revelation of himself, for none but God can acquaint us with his own nature. And again, God has done just this. God is knowable because he has made himself and his nature knowable to us. Louis Burkhoff in his Systematic Theology puts it this way, quote, Man cannot give a definition of God in the proper sense of the word, but only a partial description. In other words, there is no definition that we can come up with that fully describes who God is. None. There's no amount of words that we could put together, even in the most eloquent order, that could possibly describe who God is. No definition. But Burkhoff goes on to say this, at the same time, it is maintained that man can obtain a knowledge of God that is perfectly adequate for the realization of the divine purpose in the life of man. However, true knowledge of God can be acquired only from the divine self-revelation and only by the man who accepts this with childlike faith, who receives it not critically, not in a spirit of skepticism, but who receives the revelation of God as the most authoritative knowledge that stands as a fundamental principle, a starting place which can never be put in the dock, can never be questioned, can never be judged. It must be received in childlike faith. Now, where is this testified to in the Bible? Let's look at this because this is the foundation for our understanding. If God has revealed that he is knowable, we'll find it in his word, in that revelation, and certainly we do. The scriptures repeatedly testify that God is knowable because God has willed himself to be known. It's one of the great themes of Scripture, that God wants to be known and adored and praised by those whom he creates. For example, this testimony of the knowability of God is evident in the first chapters of the book of Exodus in a major way. As Moses was tending his sheep in the wilderness, he sees a a burning bush And he draws near to that burning bush to see what it is that is taking place. And there he meets an incomprehensible God. And that incomprehensible God in in, in, in verse 5 tells him to take his sandals off because he is on holy ground. And then that incomprehensible God begins to explain and to reveal and to define who he is. 
he then gives to Moses this command to make him known to the rulers in Egypt. And Moses says this in verses 13 to 14. Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Moses, The I am has sent me to you. Spend some time there in Exodus chapter 3. Indeed, that is holy ground. There, the incomprehensible, eternal, unchanging God who is the source of all life, who defines himself as the I am, reveals himself to Moses and then says to Moses, reveal me to the people. We see a little bit later on in Exodus chapter 6 verse 7 again, God says to Moses, he says as he describes the great redemptive act that he will perform with the nation of Israel rescuing them from slavery in Egypt and bringing them into their own land, he says, then I will take you for my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now that phrase there, you shall know that I am the Lord, you shall know that I am Yahweh, is a very important theme within the book of Exodus. In fact, you find it about a dozen additional times in the book of Exodus over and over and over again that you shall know, that you shall know, that you shall know. We see God stepping into history and doing great redemptive acts and speaking to the people of Israel through Moses. And in all of that, there is a grand design and that grand design in God's redemption of the nation of Israel from Egypt God's revelation of himself at the burning bush and on Mount Sinai is that they would know that he is Yahweh, that he is God. An amazing event also takes place in Exodus chapter 34. Moses asks to see the unseeable God. He wants to meet God at the most highest level possible. And prior to this, Yahweh says to to, to Moses, you cannot possibly see me and live. Finite creatures cannot dwell in the immediate presence of the infinite, incomprehensible God. But God says, I will show you a manifestation of my back. And so God then takes Moses, and in that moment of manifestation, you see one of these Mount Everests of texts in the Bible. We read this in Exodus 34, verses 5 to 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with Moses. Now, if you have a NASB translation, you'll see that the pronoun he is in 
is in lower case. And he, referring to Moses, called upon the name of the Lord. But what is amazing here is that in the original Hebrew, the one who calls upon the name of the Lord is not Moses. Moses is silent. The one who calls upon the name of the Lord is Yahweh himself. In this amazing manifestation, revelation of the glory of God, he appears to Moses in this amazing manifestation, and it is Yahweh who calls upon the name of Yahweh. Yahweh who calls down his own knowledge. And he says this, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. An amazing manifestation of the essence of God in this text. In fact, it is so crucial that these words are then repeated over and over and over again as you go through the Old and New Testaments. God is knowable because He has descended in the cloud and He has called upon His own name and He has revealed Himself. When we move into the Psalter, we see this repeatedly in so many different situations and contexts. But take, for example, Psalm 76, verse 1. God is known in Judah. His name is great in Israel. The name stands for the sum of his character. The name is not just some kind of name that we use today as as just kind of some simple designation. The name defines the person. And here... The psalmist says, God is known in Judah, and his name is great in Israel. We get into Isaiah chapter 55, and and in, in fact, that whole latter part of Isaiah from chapter 40 to chapter 66 is so important. In many of those chapters, God himself puts puts himself in, in the dock and questions himself as to his incomparability with the nations. You ought to read those chapters, especially chapter 40 to 48, as God over and over and over again shows how he is incomparable, how no other so-called God even comes close. And one of the main reasons why that is, is that those other gods are mute. They don't reveal anything. But God is incomparable. Why? Because he speaks. He does not remain in the darkness. He does not play some kind of game of hide and go seek. He speaks. And when he speaks, there's light. We even see this in Isaiah 55 verses 8 to 11. Notice how in this text, we, we begin with the incomprehensibility of God, verses 8 to 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my thoughts are higher than your thoughts and my ways than your ways. But notice what comes immediately after. If we would just stop at the end of verse 9, again, we would be left in hopelessness. The best we could aim for is agnosticism or perhaps some kind of weird mysticism. 
But notice how the text continues. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God here is speaking of the reality that apart from his speaking, we can know nothing. But he has spoken. His word has come down. And it will bring us to a knowledge of him. In the New Testament, again, many different testimonies, but we've looked at this verse already. John 17, verse 3, Jesus' high priestly prayer, he summarizes eternal life as knowledge of God. Notice, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's what eternal life is. And so if we are those to say there is such a gift as eternal life, we are at the same time making the assertion that that is possible because God has spoken. He has revealed himself. He is not in the darkness. If we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in that very important text of of chapter 2, comparing the foolishness of the world with the wisdom of God, we, we see this important assertion made in verses 11 to 13. Again, we begin with divine incomprehensibility. Who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Again, if we stop there and put the period and close the book, we have no hope. But what does he go on to say, the Apostle Paul? He says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but that same spirit who knows the thoughts of God, the one who's from God. Why? So that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. God has spoken He has made himself known. Now, we can look at this knowledge and we can categorize it in three ways. There are three kinds of knowledge that, uh, three modes of, of, of revelation that God uses to communicate his knowledge. First of all, God has willed to make himself known through general revelation. As we think about this, this divine condescension, this great grace of God to us in his knowledge. First of all, he makes that known through what we call general revelation. He makes it known through the created realm. Everything that he has made has a fingerprint upon it that testifies to the identity of the creator. Everything, and especially man. We see it, for example, in Psalm 19. It begins with these words, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night after night reveals knowledge. From the very first moments called night and day, there has been this revelation of God's character. Acts chapter 14, verse 17, Paul says this to the 
to the superstitious residents of Lystra, he says, he did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good. And he gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God has always in creation shown himself to be a good God. He is good. Romans chapter 1 verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. What Paul is saying here is that no man is innocent in his ignorance. All ignorance so-called ignorance, is culpable. Why? Because through creation, from the very beginning of time, God has always made his power and his divine nature, his holiness, known through what has been made, through what is seen. And it is clear. There is not a time in history where the Knowledge communicated through, divine, through general revelation is more clear than others. It's not that that's more clear now in the scientific era than it was in the pre-scientific era. No, the content of the knowledge has always been clear. Always. Now, when we define revelation, general revelation, we, we look at it this way. General revelation is, is general because it is universal. It is everywhere and always. It never fluctuates. The same knowledge, day after day, night after night, it's consistent. It does not ebb and flow. It's also revelation in that this testimony is not something that is discovered. It's declared, as the psalmist says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare. The heavens declare. And the the testimony is declarative, it's proclamation. It's not something that man has to dig down deep to try to discover. And if he doesn't have the right power of microscope or the right power of telescope, he's not going to access it. No, the testimony of Scripture is clear. It doesn't work that way. The testimony of Scripture is is clear that the, the revelation God has put in creation has always been there. There's also a second category, what we call special revelation. God has also made himself known through special revelation. Now, general revelation has its own mode, and general revelation has its own purpose. In general revelation, there is no salvation message. In general revelation, there is the knowledge of God, his goodness, his power, his holiness, But it's in special revelation that we have a different mode and a different purpose. This special revelation is really what we typically define as the words of God, the the speech of God inscripturated on the pages of Scripture. Notice Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to the Lord. There's again is the incomprehensibility. The secret things belong to him, but the things revealed belong to, our, to us and our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. Notice the words. The things revealed in this context refer to the words, the words that God revealed through Moses. You can look at it also in Deuteronomy chapter 30 verses 11 to 14. 
where, where Moses puts it this way, this commandment, as he records the word of God, this commandment which I command to you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of your reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up for us and get it for us so that we might hear it and observe it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it and make us hear it that we might observe it? But the word is very near you, God's word. And as that was being stated, that was the law, the Pentateuch that Moses had already revealed large portions of to the people of Israel. And now he's putting the final touches on that revelation and is saying, here it is. You don't need to go anywhere. God himself has come to you. And here are the words. Psalm 19 verses 7 to 9, after extolling the virtue of general revelation and its particular purpose and mode, he then turns to Scripture. He turns to the words of God, and he calls it the law of the Lord. He calls it the testimony of the Lord. He calls it the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord. And every purpose that those different descriptions have is to show us that this special revelation of God is redemptive in nature. It does what general revelation cannot do. It tells us the way of salvation. It tells us of the redemption of God, the good news. Again, we saw that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, that God so used the biblical writers, his servants, the prophets, that they would take the knowledge of God and communicate it in words. In defining the difference between these two kinds of revelation of the knowledge of God, B.B. Warfield aptly describes it this way. He says this, quote, the one, that's general revelation, is addressed generally to all intelligent creatures and is therefore accessible to all men. The other, special revelation, is addressed to a special class of sinners to whom God would make known his salvation. The one has in view to meet and supply the natural need of creatures for knowledge of their God. The other, to rescue broken and deformed sinners from their sin and its consequences. That's the special revelation of God. The words of God, those redemptive words that give us the message of salvation. Well, there is a third mode that God has used to reveal himself, and that is Jesus Christ. And this is communicated so beautifully numerous places through the gospel of John, but even just look at John 1 verse 1, we read that in the beginning was the Word. That word Word is used to describe the Son of God and His particular ministry of making known the knowledge of God. We read a little bit later in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. A little bit later in in John's gospel, in chapter 14, verses 8 to 10, we read this very familiar account. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. Jesus said to him, 
Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I've explained him in my being. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And that is certainly not to denigrate the Scriptures as if to say that, well, now that Jesus Christ has come, we put aside the Bible. No, in fact, as the book of Hebrews will go on to testify, that it's the, it's the Scriptures that contain the testimony. But we must see that Jesus Christ, in His appearance, has exegeted, has expounded, has exposited the character of God in, in, a, in a way that surpasses everything else. He has revealed God to us. And that's communicated as well in John's first letter, 1 John 5 verse 20, where we read this, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And so that's why we say, if you know Jesus, you have life. If you know Jesus, you have come to know God. That He is the way, the truth, and the life. And that all our knowledge of God goes through Jesus, for it is in Jesus that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are contained. He has expounded God. Now, what does this reality, this doctrine about God, his knowability, what does it demand from us? How do we respond to this? And of course, we could spend hours tracing this all out, but let me summarize with five concluding exhortations. Number one, we must recognize our accountability. We must recognize our accountability. Ignorance is not an option. Even if you were to flee this room right now and head into the darkness up in the mountains, you would have no justification if you do not know Jesus Christ. If you would say, I don't know God, I'm an agnostic, or God cannot be known, I want you to know this, that's not an option. Not possible. It's not a legitimate response. It will not stand up in a holy court with God's wisdom. That God has willed to make Himself known through creation, Scripture, and Jesus leaves all men without excuse. We can never claim 
ignorance. And that's why Paul, when, when he went into the city of Athens, that, that place that was known for its wisdom and knowledge, he goes into Athens in Acts chapter 17, and he wanders the city, and he is troubled. This ivory tower of learning. And then of all things, he comes across an altar that says, to an unknown God. As if to suggest that you have any right to say that the God who deserves that praise is unknowable. And Paul is stirred. He he had not wanted to preach there in Athens. He wanted to get to Corinth. He did not like Athens, but he could not remain silent. And so he preaches He says this at the beginning of his sermon as he addresses the high court of the city of Athens. Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I Proclaim to you. Now, many have thought that Paul's address to the Areopagus was some example of of contextualization, of trying to meet in the middle somewhere with the elite intellectuals of the world. That is nothing of the sort. Indeed, Paul begins his sermon with an acknowledgement of respect that he is standing before these authorities of the city. But the words that he says in verse 23 show that he has no respect for their ignorance. He says, what you wise men worship in ignorance, listen, I proclaim to you. God is there and he is not silent, Paul says. He has left a witness And your ignorance is culpable. There is no excuse. And so perhaps you're even here tonight and you've been one who says, you know what, I really don't know if God exists. It's just not, I'm not at the place yet where my life needs to change. I I, I think I need more time. You don't have time. The witness is clear. And you walk out and you get hit on Roscoe Boulevard You will not be able to stand before the throne of God and say, I just couldn't know. There's no excuse. This knowledge leads to accountability. He is there. He has not been silent, and you are without excuse. Secondly, we must utilize the means, the knowledge of God, as we've said already in our past studies, uh, the knowledge of God is, is a matter of, of ultimacy. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 9, 23 to 24 says that, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom and the mighty of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands me. That is the most important thing in this life. And who can possibly say, well, yes, God exists, but I'll live my life a different way. I'll pursue worldly wisdom or worldly riches. That's utter foolishness. No, the knowledge of God 
It's a matter of ultimacy. He exists, and it must be our top priority to know him. And therefore, because he is knowable, we must utilize the means that he has given us. If we really believe that God is knowable, if we really believe that he exists, and he does, and has left us without any excuse, then this reality will affect our attitude to God's gracious revelation of himself in the world, in in creation, in, in scripture, and in Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, what is your attitude toward those things? How do you use creation? How do you look on creation? What do you do with your Bible? And then how do you relate to the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you utilizing those means that God has given you to know Him as this matter of ultimate priority? Again, as Burkhoff stated, true knowledge of God can be acquired, but only from the divine self-revelation and only by the man who accepts this with childlike faith. So are you running around in the world trying to learn God from the wise men of this world? Or are you going to those sources where God has made himself knowable? Number three, we must revere the revealer. God did not have to speak, but he did. And he did it at our level. John Kelvin uses a wonderful analogy of a father who takes his young child upon the knee and the child and then the father prattles with that child that's what god has done with us calvin says it this way he condescends to our ignorance and therefore when god prattles to us in scripture in a rough and popular style let us know that this is done on account of the love which he bears to us He has not said, here I am, and you better find the way to communicate with me. No, God in his great condescension, in his considerateness of our state, he comes down to our level, he sits on the ground, and he puts us on his knee, and he prattles. He speaks in our language as a father does that newborn child cooing. And in that, there is an an amazing display of love. And through creation, through this word, and ultimately through Jesus Christ, this is what God has done. He has come to us. This should provoke our deepest adoration and reverence. And it should also provoke our, our reverence and fear. It's like what we must do that, that, along with, a, uh, with Moses as he stands by the burning bush. And when we come to that knowledge of God, that revelation of God, we take off our sandals and recognize, I am standing on holy ground. Number four, we must embrace the certainty. We must embrace the certainty. Indeed, we are to reject self-certainty. We are to reject self-sufficiency. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. We cannot find certainty in ourselves. And it's the great foolishness of man to continue on that track, to, to seek finding 
sufficiency and certainty and confidence in the self, and all that's there is emptiness. But we can be certain. What God wills to be known cannot be treated with with skepticism or indecision, with dilly-dallying. We cannot treat it with criticism. Instead, because he has said it, it is sure. This is what drove the Reformation, in particular in, particularly in the life of Luther, as, as he confronted the Catholic system, which had so obscured the knowledge of God behind the words of men and painted God to be this distant God who speaks in darkness and obscurity. Luther recovered the Bible, realized that God has spoken clearly, and this is then what he said as a result. He said it this way, For it is not the mark of a Christian mind to take no delight in assertions. On the contrary, a man must delight in assertions or he will be no Christian. And by assertion, in order that we may not be misled by words, I mean a constant adhering, affirming, confessing, maintaining, and an invincible persevering. Because God is willed to be known, that which he reveals then leads us to certainty. Finally, we must speak then with courage. That God wills to be known is the ultimate basis for gospel proclamation. This is why we preach the gospel. Because God has declared it. He has revealed it to us. Matthew chapter 28, we read these words. Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. That God has spoken means we have no option but to speak. And we speak so that all may know that He is Yahweh, that He is Savior. Now, I want to challenge you tonight, and I want to ask you, do you know God? And if your answer to that question is no, again, I warn you, you have no basis to say that. God has made himself known ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ who came to explain him to us, who came to take upon himself our sin so that we might have newness of life and come to know that eternal life which he himself defines as the knowledge of God. You can have that knowledge. And if you do not have that knowledge yet, I ask you this evening to, to, to come and talk to us. We'll be here at the front, and you can just say, I need to know Christ. And we'll help you. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled and thankful 
You have not left us in the dark. You have not left us to our sin, to our creatureliness. But you have spoken, and you have spoken clearly. And ultimately, in the name or in in the person of Jesus Christ, and through him, you have manifest to us majestic knowledge. And through him, you've given to us eternal life. We thank you for that. We are humbled, amazed, and we adore you. In the name of Jesus, amen.